Good evening, everyone. This evening, out there, as common as any ordinary Sunday, no trumpet fanfare, no angel anthem. Yet tonight, here in this room, some union between people worthy of awe. Something will happen here in this room, something deserved or undeserved, but lasting, for that is the nature of grace. Our hearts will open to a new ministry. Our minds will realize some new truth about the work that we do together. We will sing, we will connect, because this evening here has never happened before and will never happen again. So, we pray with the eternal within us and shared among us that we are open to all this experience will offer. We pray that these moments of celebrating the ministries about to be joined will be transformed into lasting bonds of fellowship and radical change for the world. As we celebrate these wonders before us, may your heart be open. May your mind be free. May you sing. May you know that you are connected. Welcome to this celebration. This reading is from Amy Tan, the Joy Luck Club. Oh, you bad little thing, said the woman, teasing her baby granddaughter. Is Buddha teaching you to laugh for no reason? As the baby continued to gurgle, the woman felt a deep wish stirring in her heart. Even if I could live forever, she said to the baby, I still don't know which way I would teach you. I was once so free and innocent, I too laughed for no reason. But later I threw away my foolish innocence to protect myself. And then I taught my daughter, your mother, to shed her innocence so she would not be hurt as well. Little one, was this kind of thinking wrong? The baby laughed, listening to her grandmother's laments. Oh, oh, you say you are laughing because you have already lived forever, over and over again? You say you are the queen mother of the western skies? Now, come back to give me the answer. Good. Good. I am listening. Thank you, little queen. And you must teach my daughter this same lesson. How to lose your innocence, but not your hope. How to laugh forever. As the president-elect of the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin Board of Trustees, I am honored to welcome you today to this important occasion in our history. The Unitarian presence in Austin dates back to the 1800s, but our church was officially chartered and called its first minister in 1954. Today, we are installing our ninth settled minister. During the past three years, our congregation has undergone intensive soul-searching 
to define ourselves as a church and prepare for our future, resulting in a new mission, values, and ends, and covenant of right relations. Our mission is elegant in its simplicity. We gather in community to nourish souls, transform lives, and do justice. And so we find ourselves prepared today to gather here for this glorious occasion. The purpose of an installation is an articulation and affirmation of the covenantal relationship between the minister and the congregation. Since 1648, when the Puritans signed the Cambridge Platform, congregations in the free tradition, including Unitarian Universalists and her predecessors, have ordained and called their own ministers. We celebrate today this new relationship of mutual care and counsel between the Reverend Ms. Begg Barnhouse and members and friends of the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. On behalf of our congregation, I welcome the clergy and other distinguished guests. I welcome Meg's family. Thank you for joining us in this historic occasion. I'm the government, and I'm here to help. <laughs> Actually, I am here to help. Welcome. <laughs> the Reverend Meg Barnhouse to Austin and to Texas. It's an honor for me as an elected official to extend this greeting. But it's also significant for me as someone who has been a part of this congregation for 35 years and whose father-in-law, the Reverend Ernest Howard, was also a Unitarian minister who, like most of his colleagues, recognized the call to ministry includes a call to civic engagement. But why, you might ask, is there an actual political government presence at a clearly religious installation service? Certainly, we all know about and probably advocate for separation of church and state. That being said, there is no question that clergy have a role to play in politics, and I would suggest a responsibility as well. In his book, Pulpit and Politics, Clergy and American Politics at the Advent of the Millennium, which was published in 2004 by the Baylor University Press, Conrad Smith said, Clergy have long been important forces in American politics, whether one considers their public pronouncements during the Revolutionary War, their championing of benevolent societies during the Second Great Awakening, their involvement in the abolitionist movement of the mid-1800s, or the efforts in the civil rights era of the 1960s. Ministers constitute political actors of some potential import because they possess important political resources, and they enjoy important opportunities to influence others. One political issue that Mr. Schmidt did not mention was equal rights for the GLBT community. And I'm glad to note that Reverend Barnhouse is already engaged in that effort. In fact, she may not know it, but as a result of her public stance, as a Unitarian Universalist minister standing on the side of love, Meg and I share a common distinction. 
we've both been blogged about with disparagement. <laughs> yes, by the limited government ultra conservative Liberty Institute. She, for her mass same sex marriage and commitment ceremony on the steps of the state capitol, and me for being the only member of the legislature to vote against adding under God to our state pledge. <laughs> Welcome to Texas. <laughs> and to the politics of our time. There is no doubt that the Reverend Meg Barnhouse can lead this congregation toward more actively living its mission of nourishing souls, transforming lives, and doing justice, both within the congregation and also within the greater community. Austin and Texas are ready for your engagement, Meg, and we're very glad that you're here. When the doctor took her bandages off and led her into the garden, the girl who was no longer blind saw the tree with the lights in it. It was for this tree I searched through the peach orchards of summer, in the forests of fall and down winter and spring for years. Then one day I was walking along Tinker Creek, thinking of nothing at all, and I saw the tree with lights in it. I saw the backyard cedar where the morning doves roost, charged and transfigured, each cell buzzing with flame. I stood on the grass with the lights in it, grass that was holy fire, utterly focused and utterly dreamed. It was less like seeing than like being, for the first time, seen, knocked breathless by a powerful glance. The lights of the fire abated, but I'm still spending the power. Gradually, the lights went out in the cedar. The colors died. The cells unflamed and disappeared. I was still ringing. I had my whole life been a bell and never knew it until at that moment I was lifted and struck. I have since only rarely seen the tree with the lights in it. The vision comes and goes, mostly goes, but I live for it. For the moment when the mountains open and a new light roars in spate through the crack and the mountains slam. Good evening. I am Jennifer Nichols, and many of you probably don't have a clue who I am. I am the District Director for Lifespan Faith Development for this district. And I bring to you greetings today from our District Executive, Susan Smith, and from the Southwestern Unitarian Universalist Conference, a district of the UUA, as well as from the Hallelujah staff of the Southern Region. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. My colleagues from the Southeast District in particular were not nearly as despondent at your departure, Meg, once they realized that you had landed at least in the region. All of us, our staffs, the Southwestern Board, including our presidents, Kevin Bolton, and several of the SWEC board members are here today. We pledge ourselves as support and resources to the health and vitality of your ministry and of this congregation. You guys have done some long, hard work over the past few years, 
and we are interested and excited to see where you go from here. I encourage you to continue your work outside of the congregation to stay connected to the district and the region and the UUA. May the work we do together as a larger faith change the world for good. Blessings to you all. Good evening. And hey, <laughs> and hey, um, I'm just so happy to be here. Um, I was really honored to be invited to give the charge to the congregation. Now, what's that you say? That's where I get to tell you not to screw this up. <laughs> so I was a, your religious educator here for several glorious years, uh, leaving in 2003, and when I felt called to serve the larger association, and um, I wouldn't trade my life anything now for anything else, but I really do miss you. I sat in the pew this morning and started to cry um, because I just had such a wonderful time here. So I came to know Meg and Kaya when uh, Meg was serving an interim ministry in Princeton, New Jersey for two years, and Princeton is one of the 51 congregations in the Metro New York District. I've long been charmed by Meg's warm-hearted stories and songs about family and community, and I was really excited about getting to know them personally. Um, they're a very huge asset to our district. I was taken with one particular story, you know, the one about the Barnhouse family tradition where they welcome uh, newcomers to the family at weddings with a little firework at a solemn moment unannounced to the new family. And, uh, you know, it was all I could do to not bring some fireworks here with me today. I thought I could light them out here in the little garden. Um, but I knew the TSA would not like that. They already were upset about the two pounds of fudge I had in my luggage. They thought it was plastic explosives. <laughs> and you know what? I think that Meg's presence here is fireworks enough. It's been wonderful today to greet old friends and to meet new friends here at First Austin. And I've been reflecting on all that's happened between 2003 and now in my own life, in this congregation's life, and in the larger faith movement. A lot of water under the bridge. And Meg knows, because I told her, how much I love you all and how much I have faith in your capacity to grow and to serve in larger ministry to the world. Change is the only constant. We must expect it and learn to greet it with radical hospitality. Heraclitus, an ancient Greek philosopher, said, you cannot step into the same river twice, for other waters are ever flowing onto you. You cannot step in the same river because the foot is different. Meg has distinctive gifts. There's nothing to be gained by comparing her to others. Love her for her unique complexity. Make sure she has time to rest and be restored so she may always greet you with joy and love. Leave room for her to change and grow, and she will leave room for you. 
please address concerns directly with love in your heart and love in your voice. Do not wait until they grow into larger differences and misunderstandings. You cannot step into the same river twice because the water is different. Do not make a museum out of your buildings, your bylaws, or your mission. Make them expressions of your life together. After all, the congregation is not really those things. The congregation is the people, the ever-changing, the ever-growing people. Love yourselves in all your complexity, too. Revisit who you are and what difference you want to make in the world from time to time. We must be more than a sanctuary from a hostile and troubled world. We must also be a laboratory from which we go forth to repair that world. In that work, please reach out to neighboring congregations and the larger association with whom you are also in covenant. Streams that join together have more agency in the world. You cannot step into the same river twice because the shoreline is also different. The landscape of religious community is changing everywhere. We must make way for differences in attitudes about the nature of leadership, in membership, and stewardship as we make space for younger generations who will carry this congregation forward. And I think this is so crucial. If we are not willing to adapt to new ways of congregational life, the new energy will simply overflow our banks and form rivers of their own. Ask yourselves who is not at your table as you gather together to make decisions and seek ways to include their voices. So we navigate all these waters together, all of us. Your UUA staff, our president, Peter Morales, and particularly those staff here in your conference, Susan Smith and Jennifer Nichols, are committed to your health and vitality, and we live to serve you. I had lunch today with some delightful young adults, friends of my daughter who will stand up with her, she's going to cry again, at the end of March at her wedding, and they've moved here to Austin. They're not UUs, although I really invited them to come and told them they will not burst into flames when they walk through the door. I promised them. Um, but I was trying to explain why I was here and what an installation was, and they said, you need to install them? Is that like when they say they'll be there between noon and four, but they really show up at 5.30? Weddings. I attended a wedding a little bit ago where a minister, Don Sangri, welcomed guests, saying that witnesses are essential when people are making promises to each other. She spoke of those promises as having three qualities. They were sacred, impossible, and renewable. Sacred by their very nature as we covenant together in love. Impossible to keep perfectly at all times. But most importantly, renewable. As we can be restored to wholeness 
as we work to remain in relationship, to forgive and be forgiven and pledge ourselves anew. So we gather today with this cloud of witnesses from far and wide, also making sacred, impossible, and renewable promises. For my part, I bring prayers and hopes for the health and vitality of this minister, Meg Barnhouse, and the many ministries of the First Unitarian Church of Austin. Congratulations and best wishes to each of you. Now, cue fireworks. I believe in the cave paintings at Lascaux, the beauty of the clavicle, the journey of the salmon, her leap up any barrier, the scent of home water she finds through celestial navigation. I believe in all the gods. I just don't like some of them. I believe the war is always against the imagination, is recurring, repetitive, and relentless. I believe in fairies, elves, angels, and bodhisattvas, Santa Claus, and the Tooth Fairy. I have seen and heard ghosts. I believe that Raven invented the earth, and so did Coyote. In archaeology lie the clues. The threshold is numinous, and the way in is the way out. I believe in the alphabets, all of them, and the stories seeping from their letters. I believe in dance as prayer, that the heartbeat invented rhythm and chant, or is it the other way around? I believe in the wisdom of the body. I believe that art saves lives, and love makes it worth living them, and that could be the other way around, too. Look at this amazing Unitarian Universalist community that we are creating tonight. Feel the warm energy of it buzzing throughout this space, the excitement and celebration of deep and special relationship of minister and congregation. It is our being together here and now that makes this sacred space and time. May we be grateful for this opportunity, for the tangible and intangible opportunity and experience of being part of something greater than ourselves. Let us breathe in the strength and power of our wholeness. This congregation is a part of an interconnected community made up of over 1,000 other Unitarian Universalist congregations that choose to be mutually supportive partners in bringing love, compassion, and justice into this world. What could be a more worthy goal? Meg has chosen for this evening's offering to go to the, as the congregation's gift to our Unitarian Universalist Association, to strengthen the work of our 
network of mutual support for congregations and their professional ministries. Consider for a moment the significance of this wonderful community and all it aspires to do to nourish souls, transform lives, and do justice. And I invite you to express your gratitude for this community and celebration of this ministry through your gift to this special offering, which we will now joyfully give and receive. The Reverend Peter Morales was elected to a four-year term as president of our Unitarian Universalist Association in June 2009. As president of our association, he is responsible to the UUA Board of Trustees for administering staff and programs that serve over 1,000 member congregations. He also acts as our principal spokesperson and minister at large. Peter is the first Latino president of our association and elected on the platform of growth and multiculturalism. Public witness is central to Peter's presidency, and he is especially passionate about immigration reform and environmental justice. Prior to his election, Peter served as a senior minister of the Jefferson Unitarian Church in Golden, Colorado, one of our fastest and largest growing congregations. From 2002 to 2004, Peter was the UUA Director for District Services, and that's when he was my direct boss for a couple of years when I was serving District Services. He also served on the UUA Board of Trustees as a trustee from the Mountain Desert District and on the UU Ministers Association Executive Committee. Peter grew up just down the road in San Antonio, Texas, and he earned his Master's of Divinity from the Stark King School for the Ministry in Berkeley, California, 1999. Peter and his wife, Phyllis, have been married for more than 40 years and have two adult children, Miguel and Marcela. I proudly introduce to you now our president, Peter Morales. Thank you, Laurel. What a delight it is to be here. Um, as you heard, I grew up in San Antonio, though I left at the age eight of 18, um, and a few things have changed since then. So I come regularly as a visitor, I especially thankful to uh, Representative Donna Howard for reinforcing what I'd always hoped that not all Texas politicians wore rugged leather coats uh, of the sort worn in Brokeback Mountain as uh, your current uh, uh, governor and presidential candidate has done on television. It, uh, it was something... Uh, you know, confession is good for the soul, so I'll share with you a confession I made to Meg this morning that it was especially challenging to accept this invitation, because she wasn't aware how deeply I have resented over the years a colleague who's so much funnier than I am, um, as I've seen her speak and, and, and read her writings. 
As I said, I, I grew up in San Antonio. As a child, I attended a small Lutheran bilingual mission church on San Antonio's west side barrio, one of the tiny little Protestant islands in a vast Catholic sea on San Antonio's west side. My mother, Oralia, had grown up a few doors down the street uh, and had attended as a girl. When I was 10, we moved near a different Lutheran congregation. It was the same denomination, but couldn't have been more different. It was all Anglo. It was a big, growing church of about a 1,000 members. We went every single Sunday. And I attended both Sunday school for an hour and then the worship service. Later, I spent nine months in confirmation classes every Saturday morning. In that class, I was taught conservative doctrine. I could answer all the questions, and I memorized lots and lots of proof text verses. I was taught it was a matter of life and death, eternal life and death, to believe the right things. And then I went to college. <laughs> and I learned about evolution and cultural anthropology and comparative religion, and I simply couldn't believe what I'd been taught to believe. So I had to leave the church of my youth. You know, my story is pretty typical, especially for people of my generation. Our congregations serve as a kind of religious refugee centers for doubters and heretics. Millions of people of my generation felt abandoned by the religious communities in which they were raised. When we were very young, the church was a kind of extended family. It was a place where we belonged where we were accepted, where we felt safe. However, there was a price of admission. We had to believe the doctrine or pretend to. When we couldn't do it any longer, we no longer fit. Many of us left all religion behind. I wonder how many millions of people there are in America who have left the church in which they were raised and have become bitter and anti-religious. There's a newer story that I'm hearing more and more often. The new story is a tale of a younger generation, particularly for people under 40. They come to us wondering if there's something more than a life spent pursuing success. They don't have any bad memories of indoctrination and rigidity. They don't come seeking a refuge from rigid orthodoxy. They come seeking community, a spiritual home that's a refuge from banality and emptiness. They also come longing to join hands with others to do something good in the world. Those who grew up Unitarian Universalists tell yet a different story. Theirs is a story of growing up with freedom from rigidity, perhaps too much freedom sometimes. They seek depth, something to which they can anchor their lives. If they're not imprisoned by rigid orthodoxy, they're sometimes adrift in a relativistic sea. So we come to liberal religion by different paths. Yet there's one basic notion that almost all of us share with the most conservative, reactionary, and fundamentalist religious extremists. And it's an idea that we also share, ironically enough, 
with hardcore atheists who are opposed to all religion. Almost all of us have accepted the notion that religion is about what we believe. So the first question most Americans ask about a religion is, what do they believe? And so we get questions like, so what do you Unitarian Universalists believe anyway? Is it true you can believe anything you want? And when someone asks us what Unitarian Universalists believe, we tend to give answers that are long, <laughs> vague, and tedious. We aren't comfortable with the question. We squirm, we fidget, we struggle, and then typically we talk about what we don't believe. The trouble is that we treat the question, what do you believe, as an obvious and natural question. After all, religion is about what we believe, isn't it? No. No. Religion is not about what you or I or Baptists or Catholics or Jews or Muslims or Hindus believe. And I would even go a giant step further. Belief is the enemy of religion. Let me repeat that. Belief is the enemy of religion. Perhaps I should explain. We're so immersed in a culture that views religion as a matter of what people believe that we think this is the way it's always been. But it isn't. All of this emphasis on what someone believes is actually very modern and very Western. Think about it. Nobody objects to calling Buddhism a religion, yet Buddhism has no theology at all in the way we use the word. Buddhists don't believe anything, at least not anything that's a set of propositions. Buddhism doesn't even have a god in the usual sense. Now, of course, Buddhism might strike us as a bit esoteric and foreign and mysterious and Eastern, but let's take a look at the religious culture out of which most of us, many of us came, the Christian and Jewish tradition. Jews never had anything like a creed, a statement of belief. And ironically enough, Jesus, about whom there are all kinds of creeds, probably never encountered a creed in his life. The whole idea of a creed would have been foreign. Now, Jews did have a definite sense of God, to be sure. However, the key to God for the Jews is that he had made a covenant with the people and gave the Hebrew people the law. The Hebrew scriptures, if you look through them, never show much interest in what people believe. They show a lot of interest in what people do. They're supposed to love God and follow the commandments. And think of the great prophets. They were concerned with justice and compassion and being faithful to the covenant. They had no interest in doctrine. And the early Christian communities, while they did show more of a concern with what people believed, actually tolerated a lot of variety. Islam, the next great religious movement on the planet, also has actually very little theology. Its statement of faith is, is there is no God but God, and Muhammad is his prophet. It's a way of insisting, as the Jews did, that we all, that there's only one God, and we all owe allegiance to a common source. 
and that we are all one people. This great emphasis in Islam was with what the faithful were supposed to do, not with what they were supposed to think. All this emphasis on religionist belief doesn't really come on the scene until much later. It started with the Catholic Church and its creeds, but it really got intense with the Reformation. All of this emphasis on religion being about believing the right things is a very modern development. And even the whole idea of belief got twisted. The word used to be used in a very different way. Belief once meant what I give my heart to or what I commit myself to. It was belief was linked to emotion and to action. It didn't mean agreeing with a set of metaphysical or theological propositions. And actually, if you think about it, even in the religions that, that are most concerned and with what people believe and, believe and emphasize beliefs, the beliefs change over time. It's no longer a sin, I'm told, to believe that the sun is the center of the solar system. And today, the Catholic Church accepts the teaching of evolution. So one can be a faithful Catholic today by believing what have been a heresy a few centuries ago. Lots of American Protestant churches, we don't hear about this very much, but a lot of American Protestant churches one taught that slavery was God's plan. We don't hear that so much anymore, thank God. So even in these religions that care the most about what people believe, their beliefs change over time. But the religion goes on and on. So a religion really can't be simply about what its followers believe. But I want to make a more radical point. And the point is that religious belief is actually the enemy of religion. Every major religious tradition seeks to convey a sense of wonder, of mystery, of awe, of humility, of interconnectedness. Belief systems stop this cold. Belief systems start where our thinking stops. Once we think we've explained it all, once we think we have all the answers, we become arrogant, belligerent, and defensive. Take a look at what happens when a belief system takes hold. Because what follows is truly horrible. First, we categorize everyone who doesn't agree with us as either ignorant or evil. If we have the truth, and are certain we have it, then our task in life becomes spreading this truth. And our task also becomes defending the truth from all those who disagree. You ever notice that believers have enemies everywhere? The world becomes a battleground. This is the world of Muslim fundamentalists blowing up innocent people and of Christian fundamentalists trying to criminalize gays and lesbians. It's the world of John Calvin burning Michael Servetus alive because Servetus did not agree with the doctrine of the Trinity. It's the world of the Spanish Inquisition. Once a religion becomes an all-encompassing belief system, murder will surely follow. Believers are dangerous. They always have been. So, if religion isn't about what we believe, 
then what is it about? Can we be religious without a belief system? I'm convinced that religion without belief is true religion. Religion that is focused on belief is a dangerous corruption of true religion. Religion without belief isn't phony religion or fake religion or pretend religion or partial religion or religion light. I've heard critics of liberal religion complain that ours is a church where people can believe anything they want. Actually, that's not true. I can't believe anything I want. I want to believe that I'm going to live to be 900 and play professional baseball in the next century. I can't believe that. We all believe what we're compelled to believe by our experience. What's important about liberal religion is that you and I don't have to pretend to believe what we don't believe. We don't have to lie. But most importantly, we don't get up caught up in endless, ridiculous debates about whose beliefs are correct. The problem with asking what someone believes is that it's the wrong question. Let me repeat that. It's the wrong question. True religion is about what we love, not what we think. It's about what you and I hold sacred. The practice of true religion is faithfulness to what we love. The key religious questions that you and I must answer are these. What do we love so much that we are moved to tears? What gives us unspeakable joy? What brings us peace beyond understanding? What do we love so much that it calls us into action? And what do we care about so deeply that we willfully, joyfully, Devote our lives to it. When we focus on what we love, we ask life's essential questions. We ask questions like, how should I live? When we ask the question together in a community, it becomes, how shall we live together? What shall we do together? When we focus on what we truly love, we discover something that's pretty wonderful we discover that we love the same things. We realize that we need one another. That we want to be compassionate and gentle with one another. That we want to raise children who are kind, joyful, and responsible. That we aspire to create a religious community where we can come to know one another, really know one another more deeply. And we want to create a place where we can cry together and laugh together and sing together and learn together and act together. We want a place where we can come together to remind ourselves of what is truly worthwhile. And that, by the way, is what worship is, literally. It's an affirmation of worth. And we discover we really want to make a difference in the world, that we're not content to be a club and we know that there are hundreds, thousands of neighbors who love what we love. And if they love what we love, they have the same religion we do. And we open our hearts and our doors to them. Religion beyond belief is the religion that millions of people longed for. 
It's religion that transcends culture, race, and class. It's religion where we can grow spiritually, a religion where we can forge deep and lasting relationships, a religion where we can join hands to heal a broken world. The central issue before us as a religious movement is not to decide what we believe. That will just get us to arguing until the theological cows come home. And trust me, the theological cows have been gone for millennia, and they're not coming home in our lifetime. <laughs> no, the central issue before us, before us all, is whether we will accept the challenge to become a religion beyond belief. We live at a time when religious tribalism kills people every day. Fundamentalists try to force their beliefs on others, and millions of people want no part of that kind of religion. And yet the options offered by secular consumer culture are empty. People know that consumerism is a false god. Modern society, with its mobility, has eroded the network of relationships that gave people a deep sense of belonging and transcendence. Rigorous studies in social psychology show us that modern Americans are the most emotionally isolated people who've ever lived on earth. The most emotionally isolated people who've ever lived on earth. Millions of people are seeking a community where they can nurture relationships, raise their children, deepen their spirituality, and serve a mission like yours that is worthy of our highest ideals. They're seeking a religion beyond belief, and we can be that religion. We can feed the starving multitudes. So this is our challenge here in Austin, in each and every one of our congregations, and for our association as a whole. Just as we are relational creatures who need one another to be our true selves, so do our congregations need one another to become a powerful voice and a powerful force for compassion and justice. There is so much more we could all be doing. Just think of the possibilities here. Just think of the possibilities across this land. You and I have an important role to play. And I invite you to embrace the new possibilities of your new ministry. The possibilities before us all are breathtaking. This is our challenge. We have to know what we love. And then we have to let love guide us. This, my friends, is true religion. It's not really religion without belief. It's religion beyond belief. It's religion to be lived and felt. And it's the religion that our world so desperately needs. It is what we are called to be. I end with this simple prayer. May true religion, the religion of what we love, guide us today and always. Let us create a religion beyond belief. So may it be. Amen. No right is more precious to a free congregation than that of choosing its own ministers. By the same token, 
No right is more precious to a Unitarian Universalist minister than that of choosing the congregation that she will serve. Our ministerial search committee worked for two years through a rewarding but intense and complex process, often taking them away from their families and giving them an entirely new perspective on Unitarian Universalist congregations and ministry. In celebrating our new relationship with Reverend Barnhouse this afternoon, we are also celebrating the thousands of hours of tireless work that the search committee invested in this critical process. As I call their names, I'd like each member of the committee to stand. After all of the members are standing, please join me in offering them our thanks. First, our co-chairs, Michael Kersey, Sharon Moore, Gary Bennett, John Franks, Maria Nearing, Jill Smith, Linda West, Dale Whitaker Lewis, and Jill Wiggins. Madam President-elect, last spring, after a long and thoughtful process, with a deep sense of responsibility and commitment, the first Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin Search Committee presented the Reverend Ms. Meg Barnhouse to the congregation as its candidate for our minister. In May, the congregation voted by a vote of 185 to 1 to call Reverend Barnhouse as its minister. As Reverend Barnhouse has begun her work among us, our work as search committee is complete. We ask your blessing in decommissioning the first UU ministerial search committee. On behalf of the congregation, with deep gratitude for your long and arduous but rewarding and very successful work, I hereby decommission the first UU Ministerial Search Committee. Job well done. Now, if Meg will join me. It is with great pride and a deep sense of responsibility that we formally recognize the relationship between the people of the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin and the Reverend Ms. Meg Barnhouse, whom we have freely chosen and who has freely chosen us. Our choice is based not only on our heritage, but also upon the hopes and aspirations we hold for the future. This ceremony expresses our dedication to new efforts. We affirm by this act the goals and ends toward which we strive 
and the ideals by which we are sustained and strengthened. Reverend Marnhouse, we have called you to live and serve among us, to make our concerns your concerns, to preach your truth in freedom and love. We would have you minister to us in our times of joy and sorrow. We would have you demonstrate by your example as well as by precept the way of calm and courageous living. We would have you call attention to the evils and failures in our lives. We would have you lead us in a mutual quest toward a greater understanding of religious life. Are you willing to take up these obligations? I am with your help. Will the members of the congregation please stand as you are able? We pledge ourselves to remember that the work of this church belongs to us all. Meg, as we would ask you to be charitable toward our failures, so will we remember that you are, you are human and can falter. We recognize that we bear a responsibility in your material welfare and spiritual development. We pledge ourselves to maintain the freedom of both pulpit and pew. We pledge to assist and collaborate with you toward our common growth in religious life. Are the members of the congregation willing to take up these obligations? If so, say, we are. Then join me, please, in installing the Reverend Meg Barnhouse as the minister of this congregation by reading aloud the words printed in your order of service. We, the members of the Peace Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin, do hereby install you, Reverend Meg Barnhouse, as the minister of this church. We pledge to journey with you we offer you a free pulpit, the cooperation of our hearts and hands, and our resolute goodwill as you take up your work among us. A great joy and a deep sense of responsibility and humility, I take up the ministry to which you have called me. I pledge myself to maintain the freedom of this pulpit to speak the truth in love both publicly and privately, and diligently to fulfill the offices of worship, instruction, counsel, service, and administration. I will keep alive the meanings of this ceremony so that our shared ministry and our lives will be enriched by the spirit and trust we've given one another. In our chosen faith, I will nurture and kindle curiosity, enthusiasm, and questioning encourage growth and sensitivity, foster a sense of mystery and wonder in our lives, and act courageously in our quest for truth, peace, and justice. Members, friends, honored guests, and visitors, I present the Reverend Ms. Meg Barnhouse as the settled minister of the First Unitarian Universalist Church. <laughs> Moving beyond belief to higher ground takes courage. Easy to be courageous in this room right now. Suppose 
that what you fear could be trapped and held in Paris, then you would have the courage to go everywhere in the world. All the directions of the compass open to you, except the degrees east or west of true north that lead to Paris. Still, you wouldn't dare put your toes smack dab on a city limit line. You're not really willing to stand on a mountainside miles away and watch the Paris lights come up at night. Just to be on the safe side, you decide to stay completely out of France. Then the danger seems too close, even for those boundaries. And you feel the timid part of you covering the whole globe again. You need the kind of friend who learns your secret and says, See Paris first. This is a presentation of the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. For more information, visit our website at www.austinuu.org.